three words speak about everything we need to thrive in life. Acceptance, security, and significance. I need to know I'm loved. I need to know I'm safe. And I need to know that I matter. And pretty much everything the culture around us teaches us to use in order to measure the value of these three things is a lie. Neil Anderson tells the story of a family known as the DePairs who received a call from their pastor. A boy who was about three years old was found begging for food at a local motel. They didn't know how long he'd been there. His mother had abandoned him. She had gotten cancer. She figured he'd be better off with the state than with her. So the DuPairs adopted young Matthew. He had a new life. He had a new family. He had a new name. But the programming of those years of betrayal and want were very hard to break, and they showed up in all sorts of ways. And one of the more dramatic ways was at mealtime. You see, little Matthew would take and put as much as he possibly could on his plate, and he'd eat every bit of it like it was the last meal he was ever going to have. They tried getting him to slow and actually taste the food before he swallowed it. They took him to the pantry and to the refrigerator and showed him that there's plenty where that came from, and they thought maybe that would end the infant gluttony, but it didn't. One day, the mom went into young Matthew's room, and she thought maybe the cat had left a mess, that kind of smell. What she found was a tuna fish sandwich stuck under Matthew's pillow. They'd had tuna fish three days earlier. Here he had been taken. His whole world had been changed. He moved from rejection to acceptance, from insecurity to security, from abandonment to belonging. He had a new identity and a new family, but his beliefs about the world and about himself had not changed. Today, Matthew is a well-adjusted member of the DuPere family, but that transition from a life of dysfunctionality, dysfunctional beliefs about who he was and what life was about to this new set of circumstances, this new life, was a slow process and a hard one. And what it does is serve as an analogy for you and I because, in fact, the struggle to move from those who do not know Christ and live according to the standards this world puts on us to those that embrace fully the life that is ours in Christ and who we are in him. That transition from the time we become Jesus' followers is not an easy one. We bring into our journey a lot of old programming. Frankly, I've been on this journey myself for many years, and I'm still discovering the old baggage the old programming. It's no wonder that Paul in Romans 12 says that we need to no longer live by the patterns of this world. Their standards are no longer how we're to measure ourselves. That's what the word actually means, to fit into the mold of the world. Instead, we need to be transformed. And how do we do that? We need to renew our mind. For too long, the church has taught that we renew our mind by dumping stuff into it that we just need new information. But we all know now in the computer age, there's a difference between the data on your hard drive and the programming. And for too long, churches have said, if we just teach you all the right stuff, good living, good thinking will trickle down. What Paul was getting at is not that we need to change what we think exclusively. We need to change how we think. 
We need a radical reprogramming of the operating system by which we process the choices in front of us, how we view ourselves, the world around us, and how we measure our value. And yet, for many of us, we've been on this journey as Jesus followers for many years and have yet to really begin that process. We're still seeking our acceptability, our security, and our significance by the standards that the world has set in front of us. And yet, when we come to Christ, we do enter into a new family, better yet, a new kingdom. Look at this passage from Colossians 1. Can we say it? He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Scripture constantly sets against each other two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of the beloved son of God, Jesus Christ. You and I, as members of the church, not only have the keys to the kingdom, but we are the kingdom of God on earth as children of God birthed through his son Jesus and through the Holy Spirit into this new kingdom and therefore are to live by a new set of standards. We have missed the point. It's not what you do that sets you apart as a Christian. It's who you have become and what our value is now as citizens of this new kingdom. New father, new family. Last week we looked at five things by which the kingdom of this world measures our value. Do you remember them? By our appearance, by our abilities, by our accomplishments, by our affluence, by our authority. We need to find instead the right yardstick because by those standards we will never measure up in the opinion of others, or in our own eyes. And our true value needs to be found in how God sees me. And so then we ended up with the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 5. And we saw four things about God's call to young Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, and I appointed you as prophet to the nations. There's four statements that we took, not only for Jeremiah, but for us. I formed you. And I don't make garbage. What I make is wonderful. I knew you. I'm eternal. I sit apart from time. I was here in this timeline before you even showed up, and I already knew you and loved you. I formed you. I knew you. I set you apart. I selected you with a special and precious love that is yours alone. And then finally, I appointed you. I created you with purpose. Anna, my recent college graduate, Monday or Tuesday after the sermon, she said, how do we know when God says it to Jeremiah that it was meant for all of us? That's a really fair question because we do misuse Scripture. We do often take things that in the Bible were meant for a person at a particular time and claim it as a promise for everyone. But Jeremiah is the model of how God calls all of us. And I want to take you to a parallel passage today, Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin reading at verse 28. This is one of the most affirming and powerful passages of who we are in God's eyes and what he has done to reach out and make us his own in all of Scripture. Unfortunately, it's also one of the most controversial. There's words that we tend to not like because they take us out of control of the process. 
And if there's one thing our culture doesn't like, we independent, self-made people, is to suggest that God primarily controls the process of who we are in him. There's truth here. We need to understand it. And I believe if you understand it, you'll embrace it with joy and see yourself through God's eyes as precious. We're going to begin reading in verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Last night I was reading that again, and I, I decided to write in my margin this phrase. It's all good. No matter what circumstance you face, one thing is sure. It's all good. Life is full of sorrows, joy, and ecstasy. But we have the confidence that we're in Christ. It's all good. That alone ought to lift our spirits when we think about the value that it is to be in Christ. Let's read on. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn from among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. We're going to read on in a few minutes. But this is a classic teaching by the Apostle Paul of the process of God making us his own. And there's some really important terms here for us to understand. Now, Many of you have heard the phrase predestined, God sovereignly choosing us to be his own. The idea of us being the elect of God is one of the most significant and recurring ideas in the whole of the New Testament. And yet we have run away from it for so long because in our way of thinking, the idea that God chose us means he intentionally didn't choose others. We just shut down. Last night, we smelled a skunk around, around the back of the house. Fortunately, none of our animals were out there. But I remember years ago when our black lab mix uh, champ was outside, he made contact with the skunk, and he got sprayed right here, and he was loaded in the face, and he came in. I reached down, and he jumped up, and the wet spot that was the very skunk, what do you call skunk juice? Is that the right word for it, skunk juice? The spray, the wet spray made direct contact with my nose. And it shut down my system. So I didn't smell skunk. I didn't smell anything. Sometimes ideas like this do that to us. They, they hit our senses so strong that we just shut down. We say, I can't deal with that. And if we do that, we miss one of the most precious truths about who we are in Christ. In the late 1800s, there was a fantasy science fiction book called Flatland. Anybody ever read it? It's about a world that's only in two dimensions. People are made of polygons. The flatliner met somebody from Sphere World and couldn't conceive of a third dimension. It's this interesting study on how our perceptions are shaped by our world. I believe these ideas in Scripture are like adding a fourth dimension to you and I as three-dimensional beings. So we take these things from a God who says in Isaiah, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth are my thoughts higher than yours, my ways higher than yours. And we try to take those ideas and bring them down into our world of three dimensions and insist that they fit and make sense. So when we hear this concept of God's foreknowledge and God's predestination, we have to make that serve our perceived rights to make our own choices in life. 
And we have to make it fit into our ideas of logic. So if God chooses some, does that mean he chooses others to to suffer, even though Scripture never teaches that? This is the problem. God lives (laughs) in many more dimensions than you and I. This is not something that is meant to fit into our understanding. It's meant for us to embrace it as true and trust a good, gracious, just, and loving God with the rest of it. You see, think of us as being three-dimensional creatures and God having a fourth dimension, and that is the eternal divine. It's far beyond us. What was the sin of Satan? To set his throne above God. Isn't that exactly what you and I do when we insist that God fit into our sense of what is logical and reasonable? Making God submit to what we think is fair and right? Let's get past that. Let's stop trying to make this fit and think that there's an either or. There isn't. Scripture teaches that whosoever will may come. When I came to Christ, I knew I had been searching for something and I found it. And when I had the opportunity to ask Christ to come into my life, I said, I will. I chose. But as I came into faith, I realized that something even more mysterious was happening. God was at work choosing me. What a precious thing. And to describe that, we see these steps. First, he foreknew me. What we try to do, we try to fit this into our ideas, is to say, well, foreknowledge means he knew we were going to choose him, and so he chose us. That's like somebody who had all the answers to a test, getting a straight A and then claiming credit for it. I got a hundred. Didn't I do great? Well, well, no, you had all the answers. This passage is about God's amazing act of making you his child. There's no other way to look at it. In the Greek language, knowledge is about relationship. I relationally know you. So what God is saying is, before time began, I was already in love with you and in relationship with you. The second thing he says is, because of that, I predestined you. And what that means is that he claimed you for himself. Does that sound familiar to what God said to Jeremiah? What's the passage? Let's, let's read it again. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Foreknowledge, then he predestined me. Third, he called me. Just like he said to Jeremiah, I, I appointed you. He called me. He initiated. He let me hear his voice. He invited me into life with him. He made the invitation. And then fourth, and I'm putting both of these together, he justified and glorified me. And the way I want to explain that to you is that he brought me into his family. He adopted me as his own. That's what he did. The word justification has to do with me having been made right before God. I had sin in my life. I was worthy of punishment, the wages of sin is death. But in Christ, I have been justified through faith in him. I've been made right, and I've been glorified. I have been transformed into one who reflects the very glory of God. What did he say to Jeremiah? I formed you, and he did that here. Isn't that interesting? I think all four things that God says to Jeremiah are reflected in this Romans 8 idea of how God made us his children. The key thing here is to not wrestle with it. 
not to make it fit in and not say because God did this, he must have failed by not doing the other idea of condemning people and therefore I'm going to reject this outright. All that is is you trying to fit this multidimensional concept of who God is and what he does into your simple three-dimensional ideas of logic and how life goes. Just stop doing it. Trust in a good and gracious God who always acts fairly and always does the right thing and let yourself embrace the fact that even though at some point you made a conscious choice to start a journey with Jesus, all along he was pulling you in. He had called you by name. He formed you and he set you apart for himself. See, if you can get there, that will transform your idea of the value that you have to God. You'll stop thinking of spirituality as simply your journey and your struggle. And you'll start embracing this joy of God reaching out to you, reaching and finding you. That makes us very precious people. I love that idea. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by it, and I'm grateful for it. And that's my prayer for you, that you can embrace this idea that God knew you. He set you apart. He made you. He said, that one's mine. And we are precious to him. And he has formed us into something that has value and worth. Well, we're talking about um, this idea of self-esteem. And Eleonora said, have you heard about Jessica's daily affirmation on YouTube? She showed it to me, and I thought it was really phenomenal. How many of you have seen it? Just watch this for a minute. Look, I can be a shark. Now, my whole house is great. I can do anything good. I like my school. I like anything. I like my dad. I like my cousins. I like my aunts. I like my Allisons. I like my mom. I like my sisters. I like my dad. I like my I like my hair. I like my haircuts. I like my pajamas. I like my stuff. I like my rooms. I like my whole house. My whole house is great. I can do anything good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can do anything good. Better than anyone. Better than anyone. <laughs> Let's try that. I love my life. I can do anything. That girl's going to go someplace. No doubt about it. Wouldn't it be great if all of us had some daily affirmation, but not out of the ways the world measures us, but out of truth and life and out of who we really are in Christ? I'd like to bless you in some way with that today. Let me just ask you, have you ever laid awake at night crying, feeling like your life wasn't what you'd hoped it would be and you're not the person you want to be? Have you ever done that? When we do that, we're allowing ourselves to pull into the standard, the yardstick of this world. And what I want to remind you is that you are no longer a citizen of that world. You are no longer bound to those lies in terms of what your worth is. You've been transformed. You are part of a new kingdom. You have been called out. You have been adopted. You have been called by name by the Most High God and brought into his family through his son, Jesus Christ. You have a new identity. 
And what I want to do is to help you understand that identity by three basic statements about who I am in Christ. First, I am accepted. Let me just read for you just a few of the things that Scripture says, filled with this precious truth that as God's children, we have been accepted in the greatest of ways. I am a child of God, John 1, 12. I am a friend of Jesus, John 15, 15. I belong to God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. I am chosen by God, Ephesians 1, verse 4. I am redeemed and forgiven, Colossians 1, 14. I am complete in Christ, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. That's just some of the ideas of what it means to have been fully accepted by the God of the universe. I'm accepted. Secondly, <laughs> I'm secure. Romans 8, 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me just read a handful. I chose some of the more important ones to talk about the security that we are to feel in Jesus Christ. I am free from condemnation, Romans 8, 1. The law of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. I know that God is working for good in all things, Romans 8, 28. I cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 31 through 39. I am established, anointed, and sealed by God, 2 Corinthians 1. I am hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3. I am a citizen of heaven, Philippians chapter 3. I have the spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind, 2 Timothy 1. I am secure in Christ. And then third, I'm significant. Ephesians 2, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus great works. We have a great task that God's created us for. Part of his work on earth in bringing others into this significant life. I am significant. Can I read you just a, a handful of the verses that talk about our significance in Christ? I am a branch of Jesus, the true vine, a channel of his life, John 15. I am appointed to bear fruit, John 15, 16. I am God's temple, 1 Corinthians 3, I am a minister of reconciliation for God, 2 Corinthians 5. I am seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 2. I am God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. I can approach God with freedom and confidence, Ephesians 3. I can do all things, all things through Christ. He gives me the strength. I am significant. You and I, we are loved we are safe and we matter, not because of anything the world says about us, but because God has called us by name and made us his own. There are three things that we need for our souls to thrive, acceptance, security, and significance. They are yours in Christ through the cross and through the grace of God. What do we say to this? How can we respond to it? How can I process this? It's like sitting under Niagara Falls trying to drink with a straw, especially when I've been filling my sense of worth by the lies of this world for so long. How do I begin reorienting? What can we say about this? 
It's interesting. The Apostle Paul, I think, understood the struggle of his readers. What does he say in verse 31? What then shall we say in response to this? I'd like to say this to you as though it was the first time ever being said as the living word of God. What can you say about all this? If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Let me paraphrase that. Who in their right mind would dare say, you don't measure up? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? And then he says resoundingly, verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any power neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the gift of a loving God who called you my name. God calls, God keeps. How about this for daily affirmation? I'm a child of God. He's called me by name. I'm accepted. I'm secure. I'm significant. Add all that up, and what does it equal? Exactly what Paul wants us to understand here. God is for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this incredible gift that we could never have achieved on our own, that in our seeking, you were always there seeking right back, orchestrating, calling us, making us your own. Father, thank you that it is that that gives us our safety, our affirmation. It's not the result of our seeking and our working. It's the work of God and bringing us to himself in Christ, transforming us, holding us, being for us. Father, I pray that somebody in this room that has lived a life feeling unworthy and broken by this world would leave today transformed, knowing that they are your child and that they are blessed forever. In Jesus' name, amen.